0: We at the History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and the History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join the History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other History fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with the History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at HistoryGuyGuild.Locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. On today's episode, the History Guy talks about some contributions of women to the war effort in World War II. First, he tells the story of the Women's Air Force Service pilots, who put their lives on the line to help the country in a perilous time. Then he talks about Virginia Hall, the Allies' most dangerous spy, and her incredible spy craft in wartime France. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy.
1: It was December 7th, 1941, over the Hawaiian island of Oahu, and the civilian pilot instructor was up in the air with their regular student when they saw a warplane coming their direction. It was coming at them so fast that the instructor had to take control of the plane from the student and open the throttle in order to avoid a head-on collision. The plane went underneath them so close that the instructor said the celluloid windows were rattling violently. The instructor managed to safely land the plane, but two other civilian instructors who went up that day, not knowing that they were flying into a war, never returned. Like so many, after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, that instructor wanted to join the military and get their revenge. They wrote in a magazine article in June of 1943, each of us had some individual score to settle against the Japs, who had brought death and destruction to our islands. But that pilot instructor, Cornelia Fort could not easily join the military to get her revenge, because at the time the US military did not accept women pilots. When she got her chance, she jumped at it. She said, I knew that I was going to join the Women Auxiliary Flying Squadron before the organization was reality, before it had a name, before it was anything more than a radical idea. Cornelia Clark Fort was one of more than a thousand women who joined an organization that would eventually be known as the Women Air Force Service Pilots. The Wasp, and their service, deserves to be remembered. Bessie Lee Pittman was born in Florida in 1936, the youngest of five children. She married at just the age of 13. The marriage broke up after the death of their son at age 5, but she kept her married name, and went by the name Jacqueline Cochran. She had a strong personal drive, which might be part of the reason that she tried to distance herself from her humble roots. She became a hairdresser in New York, and started to develop her own line of cosmetics. There she met a wealthy industrialist, Floyd Odlum, who bankrolled her cosmetic business. But Jackie Cochran had another interest. In 1932, a friend offered her a ride in an aircraft, and she was hooked. She took flight lessons, became a qualified pilot. She and Odlum married in 1935, and used her flying skills to help market her cosmetics under the title, Wings to Beauty. She entered flying competitions, became friends with many of the famous aviators of the day, including Amelia Earhart. By 1939, she was one of the most famous women pilots in America. Knowing the U.S. was already building up its forces in anticipation of war, she approached Eleanor Roosevelt to suggest the possibility of using women as ferry pilots in wartime. Her idea was initially refused by the U.S. Army Air Corps. She went to England and served with the British Air Transport Auxiliary, which took women pilots for ferrying duties and helped recruit experienced American female pilots to fly for the ATA. Born on Valentine's Day, 1914, Nancy Harkness took an interest in aviation at a young age, taking her first flight at age 16, and earning her private pilot's license the same year. In school, she was once suspended for buzzing the nearby boys' school in her plane. At the age of 18, she earned her commercial license. She married Robert M. Love, an Air Corps Reserve major, in 1936. They built a successful aviation company. She competed in national air races and became a test pilot for the Gwyn Air Car Company, where she helped to develop the tricycle landing system. She first approached the Army Air Corps with the idea of using women pilots to ferry aircraft in 1940, suggesting that women pilots be made part of the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, or the WACS. But there were technical issues with the suggestion. And, as with Cochran's suggestion, the time may simply not have been ripe yet. As Chief of the Air Force, General Hap Arnold, was quoted as saying, The use of women pilots serves no military purpose in a country which has adequate manpower at this time. But after the outbreak of war, it became clear that qualified women pilots could play a valuable role flying aircraft in non-combat duties, freeing male pilots for combat. Both Cochran and Love submitted proposals. Cochran became head of the Women's Flying Training Detachment, or WFTD, to train women pilots. While Love recruited already qualified pilots into the Women Auxiliary Faring Squadron, or WAFS. Among her first recruits was Cornelia Fort, she noted. We have no hopes of replacing men-pilots, but we can each release a man to combat, to faster ships, to overseas work. Delivering a trainer to Texas can be as important as delivering a bomber to Africa, if you take the long view. The military seemed to agree, but only up to a point. The WASPs were not soldiers. They were not officers like many who flew with the Air Transport Command. They were civilian contractors. Efforts to militarize the WASP faced not just procedural issues, but also opposition from members of Congress and the press, who thought the idea of training women pilots to be a waste of resources. And while the WASP did the exact same duty as men who also served as civilian ferry pilots, the WASP were paid at two-thirds the rate of their male counterparts. The point was made dreadfully clear on March 7th, 1943. Margie Sanford Oldenburg had become a flying enthusiast after meeting Amelia Earhart. She had graduated from the University of California and married a Marine Ensign. According to the Oakland Tribune on February 7, 1943, she already had flight instruction at local airports and advanced training in Nevada when she left to become Berkeley's first representative to the Women Auxiliary Ferry Squadron. She went for training with Jackie Cochran's WFTD in Texas. On March 7th, she was training with a male instructor pilot, Norris Morgan, when their Fairchild PT-19 trainer failed to recover from a spin during spin training. She was the first trainee fatality in the program. As she wasn't officially in the military, she wasn't entitled to a military funeral. Jackie Cochran paid for her funeral out of her pocket. It was a stark reminder that the air service was dangerous, even to those who did not serve in combat. And a second reminder came just two weeks later. On March 21st, Cornelia Fort was ferrying Volte BT-13 Valiant trainers to Dallas Love Field, along with six newly trained male pilots. One of the other pilots clipped her left wing with his landing gear, tearing off the wingtip and six feet of its leading edge. The plane hit the ground vertically so hard that the engine was buried two feet into the ground. The pilot who had survived the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was the first woman pilot to die on war duty in American history. She was just 25 years old. Shortly before her death, she had sent a letter to the magazine, The Woman's Home Companion, detailing her experience at Pearl Harbor and her reason for joining the WAFs. The letter was published that June. The editor wrote, Her words here will live as moving account of why one woman joined the WAFs and as a testament to all American women who are helping to keep America free. In August 1943, the WFTD and the WAFS were combined to form the Women Air Force Service Pilots. The Wasp. The training was difficult. More than 25,000 women applied for the Wasp, but only 1,830 were accepted into the program. Of those, only 1,074 earned their coveted silver wings. For men, it would be tough. It's tough for girls too. Among the first set of pilots was Catherine Rawls Thompson, who was an Olympic silver medalist in diving, and once been one of the world's top swimmers. Having qualified as a pilot when the 1940 Olympics were cancelled due to the war, she decided to join the WASP. A WASP graduated with a commercial pilot's license and an instrument rating. They passed Army Air Force regulations and had the equivalent of a college aeronautical degree. They received essentially the same training as male Army Air Corps pilots. By graduation, WASP recruits had 560 hours of ground school and 210 hours of flight training. The WASP played a significant role in ferrying aircraft for the Air Transport Service. Over the course of the program, WASP logged 60 million miles and delivered 12,650 aircraft, representing 78 different types, to bases throughout the nation. Evelyn Sharp, who went by the name Sharpie, had grown up in Nebraska. She had made her first solo flight at just age 15, was one of the nation's first female airmail pilots, and had trained more than 350 pilots before becoming one of the first 23 women to join the WASP, a group known as the Originals. By 1944, she was one of the most experienced of the Wasp, a squadron commander who had ferried over 150 different planes of 18 different types. On April 3rd, she was ferrying a P-38 Lightning. Just one minute after takeoff, one of the plane's two engines failed. For many pilots, the remaining engine would have torqued the plane over and into the ground, but Evelyn jammed the rudder to counter the effect and turned the plane back towards the field. She pancaked the P-38 for a wheels-up landing. The plane was not badly damaged, but Evelyn's neck was broken. She was 24 years old. The airport at adored Nebraska is called Sharp Field, in her memory. The WASPs flew every type of mission any Air Force male pilot flew during World War II except combat. They took the duty many male pilots refused, serving as test and drone pilots and instrument and link instructors. They flew tracking and search-like missions, towed gliders and targets, and delivered weapons, cargo, and personnel. It is ironic that women who were prevented from flying in combat, ostensibly to protect them, were often given dangerous tasks that male pilots were afraid to fly. Towing targets was especially dangerous, and their planes were often hit by fire. Several WASP received wounds. The planes used for towing were often poorly equipped and maintained. At Camp Davis in North Carolina, there were 14 accidents involving improperly maintained towing planes, resulting in the death of two WASP. In June 1944, the bill to give the WASP military status failed in Congress by 19 votes. By that time, the nation had gone from a pilot shortage to having more volunteers than they could train pilot training commissioning schools were being reduced and some males seeking to become pilots complained that training women was preventing the training of more combat pilots. Arnold had pressed Congress to either commission the women or disband the program. Congress chose the latter. In June, the House Committee on Civil Service reported that the program had become unnecessary. The program was officially disbanded December 20th, 1944. Some women from the program offered to continue to ferry planes for essentially no pay, but were still refused. Despite their contribution, the WASP were not well known at the time, or for many years thereafter. Like many military programs, the records of the WASP were classified and sealed for 35 years. And their contributions and lives are just now being discovered by historians. While the WASP were experienced pilots, many of them had difficulty finding uh, employment in aviation at the time. Civilian airlines didn't hire female pilots. They said that public opinion wouldn't allow it. In 1949, the Air Force offered commissions to the WASP, but those that accepted were put in administrative roles. They weren't allowed to be pilots. The U.S. military didn't start accepting women pilots until 1974, and then the first one wasn't even with the Air Force. It was an Army helicopter pilot. The Air Force did not start accepting women into pilot training until 1976, and they weren't accepted into fighter pilot training until 1993. In 1948, Nancy Harkness Love was made a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force Reserve. She worked tirelessly seeking recognition for the WASP. She passed away due to cancer in 1976 at the age of 62. In 1953, Jackie Cochran piloted a Canadair Sabre borrowed from the Royal Canadian Air Force to become the first woman pilot to pilot a supersonic aircraft. She set numerous records and firsts for women pilots. She passed away in 1980 at the age of 74. In 1979, Congressional legislation was finalized, so veteran status and military recognition and benefits were granted to the WASP. In 2009, President Barack Obama and the United States Congress awarded the WASP the Congressional Gold Medal. The Commemorative Air Force, an organization that was founded to acquire, restore, and preserve in flying condition a complete collection of combat aircraft, which were flown by all military services of the United States, and selected aircraft of other nations, for the education and enjoyment of present and future generations of Americans, had restored an AT-6A aircraft that was used to train WASP. The CAF tours the nation with the plane as part of their CAF Rise Above WASP program. The program's mission is to share the story of the women Air Force Service pilots in order to inspire others, especially girls and young women, to rise above expectations and find a greater appreciation of their potential. In addition to serving vital wartime functions and freeing more than 1,000 pilots for combat duty, the WASP has served to inspire generations of women to careers in aviation. On December 7, 1944, General Arnold spoke to the last WASP class to graduate. He said, You and more than 900 of your sisters have proven that you can fly wingtip to wingtip with your brothers. If ever there was doubt that women can become skillful pilots, the WASP have dispelled that doubt.
0: Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy, a little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. So the the opening of this episode, where you start talking about Pearl Harbor, is in itself a really, really interesting story. I'd never really mm-hmm. considered, or not often considered, you know, that there might be civilians in the air at Pearl Harbor, just mm-hmm. caught up in the, uh, in the middle of it.
1: Yeah, I don't think a lot of people know that, and... Uh, it's kind of hard to tell on Pearl Harbor if the Japanese were deliberately targeting civilians. They did shoot at some vehicles on the ground. Uh, but apparently they certainly showed no qualms in shooting down clearly civilian aircraft because those aircraft might have warned, you know, Pearl yeah. Harbor that they were coming. And so, yeah, they were just caught in the air uh, in their little Piper Cub, I would imagine, uh, yeah, you know, and then Zeros were with Yeah, they by. didn't stand a so, chance. Uh, I mean, it is it is an interesting story, but it also is interesting because, you know, that's her, her motive for joining up was so similar to the motives that anybody had for joining yeah. up. She had relevant skills uh, and yet had difficulty finding a spot. Uh, and, uh, and then also, you know, of course, later on, she, you know, she, she dies as part of the, the WAFs, I think. But uh, so, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a story that would totally make sense if it was man, but it's more of a surprise because it's a woman. And, you know, first and foremost, these are, these are heroes. They were like anybody at the time. They saw the cause as being larger than themselves. They took great risk upon themselves to, to serve that larger cause. Uh, but it's it's interesting because it's not even that uh, it's not even that they they didn't have to yeah. go. I mean, certainly they weren't drafted. It's that they had to struggle to get people to let yeah. them go, uh, and that in itself is kind of unique. I mean, it was hard even to volunteer, and yet they did. Yeah, there were. I mean, there were lots of ways that you know
0: women helped on the home front, but this was a this was a step beyond that because they did have to push into even not in the combat roles, but into into roles that involved them in the military <laughs> at all.
1: Uh, <laughs> It's so comic to me that it was it was too dangerous to send a woman into combat, but they would let them fly, rickety, uh, ill-repaired airplanes that were towing targets for the aircraft yeah. guys who didn't know how to shoot their aircraft guns yet. I guess they, their planes got hit rather frequently, uh, and that was fine. Uh, but you couldn't go into combat. It seems like there's
0: <laughs> there's there's a disconnect there somewhere. I'm not sure that.
1: <laughs> I mean, throughout. I mean, the biggest question always was: Did we do we really need this sector yeah. pool? I mean, didn't we have plenty of pilots as it was? Uh, and I think that's, I mean, they, they just wanted to contribute. Uh, but I mean, that's, that was a question that always was difficult with Congress is to say, we got plenty of people who want to fly the airplanes, you know. Uh, so you could say every, every wasp that was, you know, in part of the transport command, uh, that freed a pilot that could go fight in combat. But I mean, you know, in the end, they had more than enough pilots of every yeah. type. Uh, and, you know, it just wasn't perceived then that, you know, it's like, oh, we're just wasting our money training women just to, you know, just to say that we had girls. So it, it's it's like they really weren't appreciated at all in their time and really weren't appreciated by Congress until, you know, 2000, until until 2008 when they were finally recognized in the Obama yeah. administration. It is. I mean, I mean, it's
0: and that's I mean, that's unfortunately often the story uh, you get these places where and these women had to push so hard. And I mean, for with people who were clearly didn't didn't really want to deal with them. Uh, they didn't want they didn't want these women involved, and even once they did, they didn't want to you know involve them actually in the army or give them. They didn't want to pay them, <laughs> and it's it's yeah, hard to imagine. Yeah. I, you know, th- those were those were conditions that deliberately were trying to push them into you know just.
1: And it's, especially at the beginning yeah. of the war, when there when there was a shortage of pilots, a lot of these women were already qualified pilots, uh, and uh, you know, Hap Arnold believed in them. But I mean, Hap Arnold finally told the you know either either make them regular officers. Or just give up. Yeah. It doesn't make sense, and I don't think that he expected that their answer would be, "Well, we're just going to give up. Though we don't need them. So I mean, it's 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 all an interesting story, but certainly they were they contributed in extraordinary ways. Uh, they took extraordinary yeah. risks. Uh, some of them gave all. Uh, they did that for their country, uh, and they certainly proved that they could. I mean, once you're behind the cockpit, it doesn't make yeah. a difference, really. You know, if you're a man or a woman. Uh, some of them, I think, were very accomplished pilots, and uh, but they also played large roles, say, in training. I mean, we made the episode on the Aztec Eagles, which was a Mexican uh, a P-47 unit that served in the Pacific. It's the only time that Mexico's had a, a military unit serve outside the Republic. Uh, and uh, the, when they were training, their their, their instrument training was done mm-hmm. by WASPs uh and uh that's uh that was true everywhere uh, you know I was at the Yankee Air Museum with wonderful people up there in michigan uh and they have they had one of the trainers and a big picture of it you know it's a little wooden box trainer, the big picture of it, and it's a wasp that's doing the training uh, so they i mean they played all sorts of important aviation roles uh and they did that uh despite the fact that they they literally had to fight yeah. for the chance and yeah uh, even when they canceled the wasp, some of them were saying. Just let me fly. You don't got to me. They just, just wanted to do fly. their part, and they had. It's it's yeah. interesting
0: because if they were you know if they were men they would have they would have accepted them happily. Uh, they, it wouldn't have been about. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. They were they were they were desperate for pilots at the beginning of the war. Women pilots are still fairly
1: rare. I think I'm not sure what the numbers look like, but yeah, you know that, that's certainly yeah. different now because we trained women combat pilots oh, yeah. and we've had women bomber pilots and I mean you know so the, the I mean the, but I mean it took a very long yeah. time. For that to change, and again, the first the first U.S. military female pilot was actually a, a helicopter pilot with the army. It was a long time before the Air Force started letting yep. women fly. Uh, and you know, I, I don't I don't want to focus on the fact no. that they were women. You want to focus on the fact that they were only volunteers. Uh, no, not a one of them was drafted or forced to do what they did, and that, that they took on the most dangerous duty duty that other pilots were afraid to take on. Uh, and they did so because they wanted yeah. to contribute and and gosh, maybe they just really loved flying. I mean, we hear that from a lot of pilots, yeah uh, a lot of the World War II pilots is that they love being up there and they love the freedom of the sky uh and maybe you know this the, these women did too, and so because of that they were willing to take on well, and it makes sense you know when you're when you're looking at
0: how you can help the country and you've got a specialized skill like that, which is even at the beginning of the war in demand, mm-hmm. you can see why they why they thought that that was their best way to help. It's. I mean, in some ways, you know, it's it's too bad that we didn't take advantage of it. In other ways, uh, it's it's what it was. But it it certainly them individually. Well,
1: I mean, it's you can contrast this with uh, I mean the story we did on the yeah. night, which is you know the Soviets just put women in the most dangerous planes and let them go into yeah. combat uh, because you know their homeland was was at risk. So we were still, I think, trying to maintain this this vision of of normalcy uh, that said that we yeah. don't risk women in combat. But I mean, there there were there were plenty of women who simply wanted to be. A part of the cause, yeah. uh, and this this whole episode's about that too, because Virginia Hall certainly qualifies yeah. as that too. So I would say that they are first and foremost simply heroes because they were willing to put their life at risk for a cause they thought was bigger than yeah. them, uh, and and they worked very difficult, you know, took on very difficult circumstances to do that. But then you also have the you know the fact that they had to, they had to fight to even be yeah. allowed the opportunity to do that, and that's that's something that's just kind of different. Most of the heroes uh, that we talk about in the Second World War. Uh, you know they didn't have to go you know fight yeah. in order to be drafted or fight in order to get into a unit most of them you know were you know that wasn't the issue yeah. I mean it was the issue is what they did under fire and
0: not of course not to say that they that they weren't heroic
1: but it was a uh, it is a different
0: situation is that they to some for some people and I'm sure for uh, a lot of women too uh, once you hit that resistance i mean it's very easy to say well I tried and that's that's good
1: enough yeah, yeah. and and they went beyond that but you know on the other hand they had they had far always far more women applying yeah. for the wasps than they, than they get you in. Know, so i mean there was never the shortage mm-hmm. no there were always just more women who wanted to do it and, and you know i think they saw the uh, the adventure in it and the importance in it and and uh, they wanted to be a part yeah. of the cause there's a lot of you know ways that women contributed on the home front but i always remember there's this uh there's this old world war Two coast guard film uh, that i've stumbled on a couple of times when we were making episodes uh and uh uh, the, it was talking about the the uh, uh, the the Coast Guard Auxiliary, the Women's Coast yeah. Guard Auxiliary, and there's a line in this that says, "You might not get to be an admiral, but you could be an admiral secretary," <laughs> and that just. It makes me laugh because that line was totally sincere. There's nothing in cheek about it at the time, and you know now if you that's, made that I mean, that's line mess in the a, trouble, from you a, like a
0: yeah a satire film. That's yeah, and that
1: one there, you know, they were yeah, that's know, that that's, uh, yeah, that, that's the joke about how things were. So, and that's not to say that she still don't face yeah. obstacles uh, in, the, in the in the workforce today. I, you know, I don't know. I've, I've never been a woman in the workforce, but uh, certainly it was a different yeah. different level of, of obstacle then. But uh, they just uh, they kept their spirit and their morale in the face of all these obstacles in the face of them doing everything they could, make sure they had the worst quarters and the worst food and the lowest yeah. pay, gave them the worst airplanes, uh, and uh, they just continued to fight for the ability to make the difference yeah. that they knew that they could make. And in the end, it's, it's awfully hard to say that they didn't make a significant yeah. difference. If you look at the number of hours in flight, uh, and if you, if you equivalent that uh, with – the number of hours that uh, we would have taken away from our combat pilots to have to do that flight—it's uh, extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary,
0: and it's all because they were willing to push, push for it. Um, you know, on a, yeah. on a kind of similar note, in terms of uh, how difficult it was for them to to get into the air. I, you know, we've done we've done a number of episodes uh, about some early, early women women pilots, like early into the the mm-hmm. whole aviation industry, and we so have, yeah. uh, we did one on like Mary Marvinkt. Who is among the, she was in like mm-hmm. the first five women. Yes, <laughs> extraordinary. And then yeah. uh, Bessie Coleman, who Bessie had to Coleman, leave the yeah. United States to get,
1: and that was. Yeah, it's a black Native American woman and just yeah. couldn't get, you know, they wouldn't even let her into fight school, anymore, so she had to go get her license over in France. Yeah, and was one of the first, yeah. And in some ways, you know, the stories
0: you tell about, about some of these women, uh, things had improved so much. It was. Easier for it was much yeah, easier for yeah. them I to mean, get a pilot's I mean, license if, than it if, was. If if
1: you want to complain about the yeah. glass ceiling today, well, certainly certainly it is easier yes. to be, say become a pilot as a female yeah. today than it was in, in 1920 yeah. or 1910 or 1940. yeah, uh, you know, I don't think anybody really no. questions and, that yeah. it's, it's and amazing uh, how that so moves that, that makes, even into yeah, the Yeah, this person all the more extraordinary yeah. that they were willing to, you know, break that boundary. So I yeah, you know, I always I, I kinda hate to focus on that. because you you want to focus on the fact that someone's just a, a yeah. heroic human. But you 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 can't step past the fact that it took something extra yeah. uh, to be able to to break the boundaries that had always been placed there before, and that's what you would say about
0: yeah. the wasp. I agree, and it's it's hard to it's hard to you don't want to make this story about oh it's it's only special because they were women it's only special because yeah, they're girls I, this, yeah. this was a, this was a remarkable this is a remarkable story of, of sacrifice and of a desire mm-hmm. to
1: help you know to help their country in a time of and need. you could write that I, mean, I think I they did do we did do one on the Air transport yeah. Command I mean there were a lot of these pilots that were behind the scenes and never flew in combat but they were flying with a hump mm-hmm. or they were flying their you know the bombers over to, to North Africa or something like that and it took a lot of risk it's stunning when you hear how many of the uh, the Army Air Force died yeah. in training because these are not easy to operate machines. All sorts of navigational errors, all sorts of stuff goes on. So I mean, you were taking risks just to do that, uh, and so yeah, the, I mean, you can just look at that and say, this is this is part of what you hear from the wasp. Is just the whole idea that the stuff that we never even thought about, yeah. like once the airplane's built, how does it get to some place where they can fly it against a German or a, or, or, or a Japanese, uh, you know, a, a, a opponent? Uh, that those people are taking real yeah. risk, and a lot of them, you know, didn't yeah. come home. And
0: it was I mean, it was important work and logistics. Is the, is the boring mm-hmm. part of war, but it's it's a rather significant part of it. You're, you're fighting. Yeah, and,
1: and and in many ways heroic, yeah. there's always risks that are being taken, and, and you find that in a number of different ways, and this is one of the places that yeah. you find it. I can't imagine anybody who would want to volunteer to be the plane that drags oh my the gosh. target for the, like, he's never fired the anti-aircraft gun before. So what you're going to do is fly around in the air and see, can he hit the thing behind you and not Good hit luck. you? Uh, I mean, I don't think anybody wanted that, wanted that duty, uh, except for the yeah.
0: Wasp. There was, gosh, they were willing to fly that despite injuries. And I mean, mm-hmm. they they all knew that, the, you know, that the, everyone knew that even flying the plane, you know, recreationally was, was dangerous. Yeah, yeah and, I, I mean, still thinking, is yes. today, of course.
1: Even but, if you're, even if you're a careful pilot, and you know, of course, a lot of these uh, high-performance uh, fighter aircraft, bomber aircraft of the Second World War were very difficult yeah. to fly, and uh, you know, a lot of more notoriously difficult to fly. And yet they were, they were flying. Yeah,
0: them. and they what they flew, they flew every kind of plane that uh, anyone in combat flew. They didn't fly it in combat, but they they flew on all kinds of them.
1: Yeah, every every sort of airport a- airplane we had, they flew, and, and a lot of those planes were were very difficult yeah. to fly.
0: Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the, to the podcast, podcast. you know that what we like say. to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on
1: Magellan TV? You know, I had the most fun. I watched, uh, I watched a space one that says, is, is the universe uh, infinite? Uh, and it's an interesting question. And actually, it was. It was something that I wish I thought of for the history guy. It's, just, it's a question talking about the history of that whole idea of infinity. Uh, which was uh, really a controversial concept, and matter of fact, it even goes into some. There's some modern science questioning the que- the the idea that the universe is infinite. That there's some, uh, and so it goes from, you know, initially, like, one of the ancient Greeks uh, was thrown overboard and drowned because he suggested that pi was an infinite number, <laughs> uh, and they were so offended by the concept, <laughs> by the very idea. Yeah, uh, Galileo uh, had to recant his argument that the universe was infinite uh, and then the solar system. Uh, so so yeah, you know, he had to literally, you know, apologize uh, or, you know, be killed by the Inquisition. Uh, it was under house arrest for years because that was Uh, uh And uh, so it's really, it tells the whole story. One of the things I like the best is they were talking about the, uh, you know, the infinite monkeys story. If you put an infinite yeah. number of monkeys in front of infinite number of typewriters, they'll have, a, you know, if you give an infinite number of random chance, one of the monkeys is going to write Shakespeare, right? Uh, And the way that they were illustrating that is they had a dude in a monkey suit playing (laughs) on a computer. And it's clearly a monkey suit. And I've just never seen them actually try to visualize it that way. But they do a really good job of dumbing it down for non-scientists like me. Uh, and making these concepts easy to understand, and then talking about the history of the whole concept yeah. of of can something be infinite. I had a really great time. It's one of the reasons I love Magellan TV. You never know what you're going to stumble into, and there's you know there's so much that you could watch, and that was just something I I stumbled on, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. What have you been watching recently on Magellan TV? So you know I was I did a true crime recently, and it was one I hadn't
0: heard of. It is called Crossbow Killer, and it is about it's it's about a murder in South Africa, Cape Town. <laughs> Uh, this, what happened is this body that was, uh, it had, looks like it had been underwater for a long time, I guess, was horribly, uh, bloated and very, very badly damaged, uh, and had a crossbow bolt through, through his head. Uh, and so they were, they were very confused when they found him, but it was, it was, it's, it's a really interesting case. And it has to do with, uh, with his wife who had her, her first husband died. And within four months, she was married to this guy she's apparently still alive today uh and not in prison uh she's she has she got early release which is which is interesting i don't know uh mm. even though it appears that she so so if you're spoiling it here she shot him through the head with well a crossbow. that part that part they actually don't make much of a secret of <laughs> but there's some interesting <laughs> stuff that goes around how it how it uh, yeah they do pretty much from the beginning they're like uh you know there's uh...
1: There's there's plenty of mystery involved but I mean yeah. why why the choice of that particular type of murder is an interesting Yeah choice, and, and yes. they kind of they kind of talk I mean, about you some know, of that I don't even I don't have yeah. a crossbow I mean people see the cabinet of curiosities that are behind me and I don't, yeah. don't have maybe there's I need still there, there's still some question uh, about whether she had
0: an accomplice or not and so the stuff that they talk about with it is is actually really 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 interesting and then there's
1: some crazy stuff they do with uh, with that's, that's very sexist. Are they asserting that she couldn't load a crossbow just because they was a were? Girl? They said she wasn't strong enough <laughs> to have pulled the to have actually loaded the crossbow. Have, and so the, maybe she got her husband to load yeah. it for her. She's like, how, how does, does this work? thing work? Show me. And then, Boom! Not to spoil the
0: whole thing, there's a lot of really, really interesting stuff and in kind of how this how this case works <laughs> out. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's it's
1: something else. That is that is that is Magellan TV, and you never, never. know what you're going to stumble. Who would have guessed that what you're going to stumble on, on Magellan TV is a documentary about the woman who murdered husband? Yeah, the and then dumped him in a river. Uh,
0: <laughs> so it's if you're into true crime
1: and you like watching that kind of stuff, it's it's there's a lot of true crime on Absolutely. Magellan TV, and if you love true crime, uh, you're not going to find more of it anywhere. And of course, if you
0: are a listener or watcher of The History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy, where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership, or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up, The History Guy tells of the heroic efforts of Virginia Hall, the Allies' most dangerous spy
1: there was a spy whom the Axis considered to be one of the most dangerous Allied spies of the Second World War, who organized a network of thousands in the French resistance, who managed to escape being hunted by the Gestapo many times, who was responsible for acts of sabotage against the Axis, for jailbreaks, for critical intelligence gathering in wartime France. One step ahead of the enemy, the spy managed to escape across the mountains in winter, a feat that would have been difficult for anyone But was particularly remarkable for a woman with a wooden leg. The exploits of the daring and audacious spy Virginia Hall were almost lost to history, but her story deserves to be remembered. Virginia was born to a rich Maryland family in Baltimore in 1906. She was raised and educated in order to marry into the wealthy social circle of her peers, but Virginia was different. She wanted adventure and liked to hunt. She called herself Capricious and cantankerous. Her classmates voted the young Virginia the most original in her class. They wrote in the yearbook, the one thing to expect from Dindy, their nickname for Virginia, is the unexpected. She was class president, editor-in-chief of the newspaper and captain of the field hockey team. In a nod to her future career path, Virginia also practiced being someone else and acted in school plays. Clinging fiercely to her individuality, Virginia told her high school graduating class that the one way for women to get ahead was by being educated. She followed her own advice by attending Radcliffe and Barnard Colleges, finishing her studies in Europe, where she fell in love with the continent. Wanting to stay, she tried to enter the Foreign Service at a time when only six U.S. diplomats were women. She was denied entry to the Foreign Service, but found work in the same field as a clerk in the consular office in Poland in 1931. Virginia later worked in many consular offices throughout Europe. She had been an active person as a child and young adult, but in 1932, she was climbing over a wire fence while bird hunting and accidentally discharged her shotgun into her left leg. Her leg had to be amputated below her knee because of gangrene, and she used a wooden prosthetic for the rest of her life. She nicknamed the prosthetic Cutbert. It weighed seven pounds and was attached by leather belts wrapped around her waist. While she dreamed of a diplomatic career, Virginia ran into obstacles as a woman of her time. She applied again to the Foreign Service, but this time was rejected because of her leg. She couldn't advance any further in the consular service as a woman and resigned in 1939, while Europe teetered on the brink of the Second World War. Virginia happened to be in Paris when the war began. She volunteered to drive an ambulance and was in France when it fell to the Nazis in the summer of 1940. France was split in two, with Vichy France as the nominal government of southern France, while Germans occupied northern and western France. While escaping back to Great Britain, a chance encounter on the train out of France led Virginia to her life of espionage. On the train she met an operative working as a British spy who gave her the contact information of some friends in London. Later she was at a cocktail party ranting about the dangers of Hitler and Nazis when a woman gave her a business card. She said, If you're really interested in stopping Hitler, Come and see me." Virginia had met Vera Atkins, who was a British spymaster. The British government formed the Special Operations Executive in the summer of 1940. Its mission was to conduct espionage, sabotage, and reconnaissance in occupied Europe and to aid local resistance movements. Prime Minister Winston Churchill's command to the SOE was to set Europe ablaze. Vera Atkins supervised Virginia and the work of 36 other female agents. Escaping from growing anti-Semitism in Romania, Atkins, a Jewish woman, immigrated to Britain in 1937. She joined the SOE in 1941 as a secretary and then assistant to French section head Colonel Maurice Buckmaster. She recruited and deployed British agents to occupied France and was supposedly the inspiration for Moneypenny in Ian Fleming's James Bond novels. Virginia Hall was highly educated. She spoke French, Italian, and German, something that was useful to the SOE. Atkins was also impressed with her intimate knowledge of the French countryside. Atkins took her into the SOE, where she received training, and in 1941 was deployed to France, one of the SOE's first agents in the region. Virginia's primary mission was to provide SOE with information on Vichy France, including political developments, economic conditions, and who had the will to resist. Instead, she became adept at recruiting a spy network. The network, codenamed Heckler, became a logistical hub, recruiting agents and coordinating their sabotage activities. In addition, it provided intelligence on troop movements, ammunition and fuel depots, and industrial production. She then spent over a year coordinating resistance activities in Vichy France and occupied France, in Toulouse and Lyon. Part of Virginia's success could be attributed to the chauvinism of the Nazis early in the war, because they did not think that a woman could be an effective spy. In Lyon, Virginia started her networking activities by staying at a convent. She befriended a brothel owner and received information from prostitutes who were friendly with the occupying German troops. She set up safe houses for those working in her network and developed a specialty in jailbreaks, helped by prison guards who accepted bribes. Virginia Assisted noted SOE operative Peter Churchill in several of his missions in occupied France during 1942. He delivered cash, ration books, and identity documents for forgers in an effort to get resistance members released. Churchill later ran a network in Cannes, having narrowly escaped the Gestapo. Spies in occupied France did not have advanced technology. Instead, they relied on ingenuity to deliver the information to their handlers. For example, the BBC inserted coded messages into its nightly broadcasts. Virginia used the cover identity of a reporter for the New York Post. She filed news stories with her editor in New York, embedded with coded messages, which the editor passed on to London. Her efforts didn't go unnoticed by the Nazis, however, and they realized the extent of the damage that could be caused by a female spy. She racked up quite the resume, agents freed from Nazi prisons, acts of sabotage against railroads and factories, and causing the disappearance of Nazi pilots who had parachuted out. In short, she followed Churchill's command, to set Europe ablaze. The Gestapo investigated and all the trails led to Lyon. They opened a file on Virginia. The French called her Le Dain the lady who limps, but the Nazis sought her as the limping lady in their most wanted list. She continually changed her appearance, keeping them guessing as to what she looked like and where she might strike next. And she was responsible for more jailbreaks, acts of sabotage, and intelligence regarding troop movements than almost any other spy of the Second World War. She was pursued by none other than Klaus Barbie, the Butcher of Lyon. He ordered one of posters that had a drawing of her with the words, The enemy's most dangerous spy. We must find and destroy her. The drawing was of a sharp-featured woman with shoulder-length hair and wide-set eyes, details obtained from French double agents. The Nazis incorrectly believed Virginia was Canadian, and Barbie once said, I'd give anything to lay my hands on that limping Canadian. He was convinced that capturing her would further his career. In November 1942, Nazis suddenly seized all of France. The Vichy regime remained in power but collaborated with the Nazis. Virginia knew she needed to get out if she was going to survive. She had previously helped Peter Churchill escape to Spain by accompanying him on a train because couples aroused less suspicion. For her own escape, she fled from Lyon to Perpignan. Then she walked over a 7,500-foot pass in the Pyrenees to Spain. Virginia covered 50 miles in two days, with a wooden leg, sometimes walking through snow. She messaged her handlers that she was okay, but Cutbert was giving her trouble. Not understanding that she was referring to her prosthetic, they told her, if Cotbert is giving you difficulty, have him eliminated. Writing in 2017 in the Studies of Intelligence journal, Craig Gowley reported he found the pass Virginia used during her daring wartime escape. At the time, the French called it Chemin de la Liberté, freedom trail linking France to Spain that many refugees used. It is now unmarked and its importance lost to time. Repeating Virginia's journey, Galley said it would have been difficult trek for an experienced hiker and an exceptional feat for Virginia, a woman with a prosthetic leg. After her death-defying trek, Spanish authorities arrested Virginia for illegal entry and she was imprisoned for six weeks. She was released after a freed inmate smuggled a letter from her to the U.S. consulate in Barcelona. She did some further work for the SOE in Spain, returning to London in 1943. The next year she joined the U.S. Office of Strategic Services, which was established by the U.S. government in 1942, to collect and analyze information and conduct special operations. Virginia wanted to return to action in France in 1944, and they were keen to let her. She landed in Brittany in a British torpedo boat and eluded the Gestapo by disguising herself as an old peasant woman. Virginia got a makeup artist to teach her how to draw wrinkles on her face and had a dentist grind down her teeth to look more like a poor woman than the rich American she was. She also dyed her hair gray. She made contact with the French Resistance and mapped drop zones, found safe houses, and helped the Jedberg team joint allied operation to drop agents into occupied Europe to conduct sabotage after the allied invasion of Normandy. She trained resistance forces to do guerrilla warfare and reported her findings until troops took over her network. Before the Normandy invasion, she called in airdrops, and the resistance fighters blew up bridges and sabotaged trains. In one OSS report, Virginia's team was credited with derailing freight trains, blowing up four bridges, killing 150 Nazis, and capturing 500 more. They took back villages well before the Allied troops arrived deep in France. She continued to do spy work until the end of the war. With the war's end in 1945, she returned to America. Virginia received a Distinguished Service Cross from American General William Joseph Donovan in 1945 for her activities. She was the only civilian woman to receive such an honor in the Second World War. President Truman wanted the award to be public, but Virginia did not want a public ceremony, saying she was still operational and most anxious to get busy. And so Hall's mother was the only outsider present at the private ceremony. Virginia was made an honorary member of the Order of the British Empire, and received the Croix de Guerre from France. The most decorated female civilian of World War II never shared her contributions with the world. She said she kept her silence because many of my friends were killed for talking too much. She married a fellow OSS agent in 1950, and in 1951 she joined the Central Intelligence Agency, which had been formed from the OSS in 1947. Virginia was an analyst on French paramilitary affairs and worked side-by-side with her husband. Virginia Hall's story was first related in a 2005 book by Judith Pearson called Wolves at the Door, the true story of America's greatest female spy. Miss Pearson details many of Virginia Hall's greatest exploits. More recently, there were three books published last year, and now there's talk of making a movie. There is a display to her in the OSS gallery of the CIA Museum in Langley, Virginia. Virginia Hall retired in 1966 to a farm in rural Maryland. She was a spy's spy and never spoke publicly about her activities. Even men of her close family members were unaware of her World War II exploits. She passed away in 1982 at the age of 76. It is ironic, if good spy craft, that she was able to become one of the most dangerous spies of the Second World War because she was a person who looked anything but dangerous. But it is more ironic that her extraordinary wartime contributions were almost lost to history because the limping lady never gave up being a spy.
0: You know, Virginia Hall, very clearly a singular person, even in the early parts of, the, of this story where you're talking about, you know, how she wasn't in, in high school and stuff like that. I mean, clearly uh, she, she yeah. was...
1: Walked yeah, her own. Yeah, path. she yeah. was. She was going to be who she was going to be, yeah. and there was no one that was going to stop her. There was no one's going to stop her. Yeah, I mean, it, I just, it, you can't with a prosthetic leg. It's just an absolutely extraordinary story. We've had a few of these of, of people that really overcame yeah. obstacles. Uh, but, you know, the idea that, you know, Klaus Barbie, yeah. that his whole career could be if made could catch, if he could catch this one spy. That, that limping this, it's Canadian. This, it's this woman with one leg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. uh I, you know, she's an absolutely extraordinary story. It, it feels like it would be so extraordinary to yeah. know her, except that she never talked yeah. to anyone about, uh, she maintained her spy craft to the bitter end. Uh, and so even her family didn't know the, the whole story, which is just it's,
0: extraordinary. It's something yeah. else. And I guess, you know, that speaks to the kind of person she was. She did her work. She was not looking. For uh, praise and fame by it, she she did what she did because that's she felt that mm-hmm. was right. And... She
1: believed again, she believed in yeah. the cause, and she had to overcome. But I mean, it, it's a little bit different for her because uh, when the British Secret Service picked yeah. her out, uh, it was because uh, and they you know they were thinking this way: the Germans would never suspect yeah. her. They would never suspect this, you know, this slight one-legged woman uh, of being a spy, yeah. and uh, that's and that worked for a very long time. I think it took it took the Germans quite a long time before they would believe that she was really running the network, yeah. Yeah. and that she, you know, she hikes out through the Alps on one leg, you know. Uh. <laughs> On one leg, yeah, yeah. Cutbird's giving me trouble. They're like, well, they're like kill him." That's, that's one of the most entertaining parts. <laughs> they're
0: like, "If Cutbird gives you trouble, <laughs> <it> eliminate him. <laughs> eliminate him."
1: Yeah, they're they're all cutthroat. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, she's. I mean, it is one of those absolutely amazing yeah. stories. But I mean, uh, if you if just imagine how intelligent oh she had yeah. to be. Uh, to do all the stuff that she was doing, I, I would imagine she'd be an extraordinary person to meet because uh, the you know the fact that she's doing that yeah. behind enemy lines. Uh, and keeping those networks going, I mean, those people really took extraordinary risks because uh, the Germans would not treat you well if they were no. to catch you. It wouldn't It wouldn't be a quick death. Uh, and uh, that she just continued to befuddle them and fool them and pull the Matahari Hari stuff where she would just, you know, dye her hair and, and they would completely, yeah, you, lose know, her. you know, just she'd walk right As, by it's,
0: it's really, really amazing. Uh, but I was thinking about that, too. I mean, she didn't have, you know. She had maybe a handful of weeks of training uh, uh, when they picked her up out of Spain. Yeah. This was not somebody who, you know, had like trained her whole life in spy craft. Uh, she yeah. essentially just came to this Well, she had naturally. been in the
1: diplomatic service That's or true. been in the consular service. So she, but, I mean, she was also just clearly, well, she was class president and, all that, you know, she was just clearly someone who was very, very intelligent yeah. and knew how to take advantage of it. Uh, and and that that's again i mean i just can't imagine meeting this woman i think yeah. that she's probably one of the most impressive women in history uh just the stuff that she was doing is just i mean there's Without, you, you I don't mean. have yeah <laughs> setting aside the fact that she was a, a woman and missing half a leg uh, which all around were things you wouldn't think of as being, you know, in the in the OSS or in the yeah. in the uh, the special service or anything like that. Uh, it's just that I mean, what she had to be doing in order to keep that all going. I mean, just it's amazing, uh, and so it's a great, it's an extraordinary story, and it's a story that deserves to be told. It's so amazing that again that it was kind of left. Yeah uh hidden until what the first books didn't come out until the 90s? Uh, 2005 right? I think is actually what you said Oh 2005 and yeah before
0: we That's amazing.
1: Yeah I I mean
0: it's it's wild because she I mean imagine finding out your granny <laughs> you know served you cookies <laughs> was uh what... was, the, was the most hunted spy in your you know the war. she was doing it at a time at the that that early period in France when she was there in 1941 as as the war went mm-hmm. on and it became clear that the allies were probably going to come through uh, suddenly everyone was in the resistance but in those yeah. in those she was there yeah, when, yeah, in yeah, those when early days be, it yeah. was hard people i mean when when germany trounced through france there was a real there was a, a lot of belief that you know, germany was unstoppable that they, there really might mm-hmm. never be a free france again and that's it's it was pretty powerful that she went in there anyway in probably the most yeah. dangerous time in a place when uh she couldn't one of the count most on, dangerous places yeah, she yeah, couldn't yeah. count she on could, help from anybody everybody, yeah. everybody
1: and uh, there, there came you don't know anybody could betray you for anybody. I mean, for any number of reasons yeah and and she that she lived through all that uh, i mean yeah. just extraordinary life too and uh, you know that's uh Uh, very few people could tell that tale and 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 even fewer could do it and not tell the tale
0: yeah never never talk about it you know i was and i was there's a lot more to her story of course we have a we have a fairly uh, short amount of time to tell it there's a point where they invite her to like this meeting and she chooses not to go and they all they're all captured and she's one of the only still active uh assets in france and the only one apparently who could get uh for a while information actually out of the country and it, i mean that's the 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 caution and the brilliance that it takes to be that level of first of all just competent mm-hmm. I, I mean it's it's really quite yeah quite incredible and,
1: i mean yeah i mean the spy craft in it i mean just is incredible that that, that she's able to sneak around and do yeah. radio and all sorts of things at a time when you know, that's what everybody's looking for yeah yeah but i mean you know just to throw on the uh throw on a disguise and be able to successfully do that and and, and she really did take advantage of the fact that yeah. she didn't look like a spy and she knew she didn't look like a spy it was and you know she's she's quite attractive yeah. too I'm, I'm sure she she made use of that i'm sure that she you know charmed german centuries while she walked right by him that's you
0: know? the you know that's that's one of the they talk you talked about in the beginning of that that there was that you know that kind of misogyny this idea that ah oh, women aren't aren't smart enough to do that that that, that was part of what the <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah, that's and she she yeah, took Why they recruited her? You know, she uses the brothels oh, yeah. and stuff like that. I mean, those were those are places where you
1: gather a lot of intelligence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're probably getting a ton of intelligence out of there, and and uh, those the women working there might be much more willing to talk to yeah. you than talk to, to to, to a, uh, a male spy. And yeah, she uh, again uh, uh, though again the the story is she was a hero. Yeah. She's someone who went where she didn't have to go. She did it because she believed in the cause. She certainly you know hated the Nazis. Uh, oh, yeah. and, uh, and so she, she did something, I mean, if she had never done this, if she had gone, you know, if she'd escaped and gone back to the U S no one would ever have said a word. Uh, and she chose instead to go into danger, yeah. uh, and to, to work for a cause that she believed in and risk her life every single day when she did that. And that's absolutely, uh, again, heroism. Absolutely. I mean, there's no other way to I, it. I, I mean, I just, I
0: can't imagine going at, you know, after she leaves France and then she goes back mm-hmm
1: she <laughs> goes back she gets out of france and then she goes back yeah well no she she gets out of france she goes back she gets chased out of france <laughs> has to limp out across the alps and she still goes back She still back. goes yeah. back
0: again yeah yeah i i mean she was she was very much clearly committed to, committed to the cause and uh for at whatever cost uh, she's certainly uh, well you know i would suspect she was also pretty ruthless oh my too, god yeah I, I, she she must yeah. have been uh I, to to do what she did, it required, I mean, yeah, it required quite a bit. I, I probably required more than I could i could give, to be honest. <laughs>
1: yeah, was, it probably required more than we were even able to, to tell the story. Yeah, but, uh. yeah. Uh, but we got to hear we got to hear, you know, a good yeah. chunk of the story and to know to know that the limping woman was real yeah. and who she was, yeah. uh, is, is, you know, because for a long time, they didn't know that we didn't know that we just knew the Germans were chasing this woman. We didn't have any idea who she was.
0: She could have been made up for all we knew at that point. And it turns out that she was a real person. And I, I mean, a bit larger. The if life, I'm going to
1: run a spy network in front of everybody who sees you walk with a limp. Yeah. And that way, if they come, you can run away and they won't think it's you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, But that's one of the, you know, she was, she would have been
0: fairly recognizable because of that. You would
1: think, yeah. <laughs> And she's able she to... She must have had a good prosthetic, yeah. yeah. She must have had a pretty... Impre- Cuthbert must have been pretty impressive for the day, yeah, because you would think at that point that that would make you easy to identify. But she... Co- yeah, of course, I, I have no idea how many people were using prosthetics. That's true. I don't know what it. the... But she even,
0: you know, she ground down her teeth so that she would look more like a peasant. And i and like, that's, that's quite a sacrifice. I... I
1: yeah, that's. that's good. I don't know if I would want to. I, do that I don't either. think I
0: would damage my teeth for uh, for something like that. But uh, but I also I it's don't fair. know if it's I would a
1: different. Have... It's a different generation. Yeah.
0: We, we, you know, we're also not facing. You know, the, that's true. We're not. We're, the, we're not, the Nazi peril is not quite the same as it once was. We're not was. faced with with uh, Nazi Europe, uh, which is uh, which again is part of what makes her story so incredible. Is that she was faced with that, and it's, it's not like I mean they very well knew what the you know what the dangers of. Going against Nazi Germany was and the Gestapo, and she she went ahead and did it anyway, and yeah, yeah, she would have She she knew any she any was day. in danger the whole time, and clearly she took her own safety very seriously. It's why she decided to walk out of uh, walk out of the country mm-hmm. <laughs> over a mountain. Uh, but it's every single day she had. Well, to she know. was saying
1: so many of her friends died yeah. because they were careless, and and so she had learned that lesson, and she just wouldn't be. She wouldn't be, and she never
0: she never was. Gosh, she didn't say a word about it for. 50 60 years
1: <laughs> but this is this is everything that the history guys about yeah. talk about history that deserves to be remembered that was on the verge of being forgotten yeah. uh, and and uh, that everybody can learn from i mean what an extraordinary person it makes you wonder you know how many people uh, lived
0: extraordinary lives like this and mm-hmm. never said anything
1: yeah and we don't know and, and their and their name was lost and that there's there are uh, people no, who we have, there's so so much heroism has been lost to history that we have to appreciate that the pieces that we find because you're right for every well for every you know every Virginia there was there were there were five six eight you know those same spies that didn't make it out of there and we might not we might Uh, not quite a few of them know
0: their stories at all and they were certainly just as Mm -hmm. brave and heroic and it's 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 why we have to you're right it's why we have to treasure what we can get and remember that there's Mm -hmm. so many other people whose stories you know this kind of represents
1: yeah absolutely
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.